let's start by prayer. Father, we come before you to hear what you have to say, Lord, and we know, Lord, that it's not by power and not by might and not by clever words, but it's by your spirit, Lord. And I pray that you would make this time worth it, that everybody came out in the rain and um, everybody able to take home something that they can chew on and um, live out and seek out and and the end being that we're more pleasing to you, Lord. And I, I pray that, Lord, with all my heart. And I pray that you would be with us these next few minutes, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I started a message way back. I don't know if you remember when Brother Tom said that everybody should be working on a message so that if you get called on, you would have one in your pocket. And so I thought, well, I don't want to do that, but I'm, I'm going to have one partially ready. So... I have been working on this for over two and a half years, so it's a barn burner. No. <laughs> then I just, kind of, I just kind of dropped it. I had some other things come up in my life. And John asked if I could share, and at first I said, no. I said, no. And he asked later, closer, when he and Lisa were going to go on vacation, and he sounded a little bit more desperate, so I thought, and the Lord brought to my memory about, you've been working on that. Sermon. So I said I would, I mean, I heard out of my mouth say I would do it, and my mind says, what did you, what did you say? <laughs> so I want to look up for a few minutes this morning at our life compass. The title of the message is True North. And I want to look at our life compass, and I think we all know what a compass is. You know, and after I was got half in this, I thought, well, you know what, there's a whole younger, younger generation here that probably has no idea what a compass is. I mean, you have your Google Maps and your MapQuest and your, you know, you get that out and it tells you where to go. You, you know, a compass is a round thing with a needle pointed and it always points toward the north. And if you can face the north, face the north, west is one way, east is one way, south is. And it's how us older folks used to get around. You know, and if it, it gives us direction, if you trust it, it calms your fears. It kind of reorientates you to where you, where you're supposed to be, where you're trying to get somewhere. You know, it's it's what we use to always get somewhere. We're going somewhere. It gets us from here to there. And um, I think we'd all agree that if we're lost, or if it's cloudy and we can't figure out which way the sun is, you know, it kind of it helps us get to where we want to go. I remember Brother Tom saying, and Johnny, you can probably correct me if you want to, he was out in Colorado on a hunting trip, and it was getting close to dusk, and he was trying to find camp. I don't know if he had a compass with him or not, but he said he was disoriented, like his mind said one way, and, but he felt like it should be another way. And, you know, if he was, um, I think we've all been there where I know, I know where this place is, but I'm just not sure which way I'm directing. I'm directing. If we had a compass, that would settle the question. And if, or if you're new in, in a new area or um, trying to take a trip, um, you know, somebody in the car was, is going to say, well, I think it's this way. Well, I think we should have turned that way back there. And if it's the wife, she says, well, why don't you stop and ask? And if you're the man, you go, I'm a man. I can find my way out of this. I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. A while back, I heard before the well, the cell phones were just out, and you know Google Maps and MapQuest and all that. And I heard a youngster say that 
he had heard of an older person who made it all the way to Florida, Florida and all they had was a map. <laughs> you know, that's all we used to have was a map. That's how we got from point A to point B. You know, and all cars, you still have, you know, I'm going to give my age away again. We used to have a compass. Remember the compass on the dashboard? And it floated. You know, it was in water and it floated around. And it was always, it was always, there's, a, there's just a few of you shaking your head yes. <laughs> giving yourself away. But now every car, you still have a navigation system. Because in the car, you're going somewhere. You're trying to get from point A to point B. Um, we don't have, you don't have them in your houses. You know, you don't, why have a compass on a mantle? We don't have them in our houses. We have them in the car because we have a destination. We have some place we want to go and we trust that navigation, that compass to lead us in the right direction. And I think I can show this morning that without a compass, we will probably have a difference of opinion as to where true north is. So nobody look at your cell phone. And Charles, which way you po point to where you think true north is? Why do you think that? <laughs> okay, Pat, where, which, which way do you think true north is? Okay. Why do you think that? <laughs> okay. Everybody has a reason why they think, you know, and we're going to be talking about, everybody in the world has a direction that they think, and there's a reason that they think. I need one more. Johnny, you got it. You, got it. you, you come up with something. I'd say it's Baghdad. So, you th <laughs> so your compass points towards Baghdad? If it why do you think it's that way? Because Baghdad. See, he has a reason too. They all three have a reason why they think, I'm going to settle the question. I have my cell phone. I have a compass on my cell phone. And true north is, if I can get it to work, is, wait a minute, maybe I can't, it's not that way. And I've done this before and I know it works. True north is, wait, I'm disoriented. It's directly that way. That's the way the compass points. And that settles the question. Sorry, Johnny. <laughs> <clears throat> it, it settles the question, and you know why. Because we know that the tr a compass always points towards true north. The arguments are over. That settles it. Nobody's going to come up after me and say, Daryl, I know north is that other direction. It's because we trust we trust the compass. Now, for all you scientists out there, I know that's magnetic north. It's not really the North Pole. Okay, just in case anybody, any of your homeschoolers know that point, don't try to correct me afterwards. 
every compass in the northern hemisphere will point to the same spot. And if you all got us your iPhones, we would all agree. It settles the question. The debate is over. And it's because we agree on the authority or the basis of what we know about a compass, that it's always constant. It doesn't matter if the sun's shining or if it's cloudy. It doesn't matter if it's storming or calm. It doesn't, if you're on a mountain or in the valley, it still always points us to what true north is. And, you know, when I was thinking about this, how can a magnetic point from the North Pole area influence a slim little two-inch long metal thing 3,000 miles away and make it point to it? I was just thinking God really truly is holding the whole universe together. When we were growing up, um, when our children were growing up, we would read stories of people going west. I don't know why. I guess that just kind of infatuated us. We always, whether they liked it or not. I mean, they finally did say, Dad, when we go on vacation, do we have to stop at all the log homes and go and tour them? We're tired of that. But we, we read stories about people uh, going on the Oregon Trail, and we watched Seven Alone, you know, where the family left and the mom and dad died, I think. And, you know, and they kept on going west because that's what Paul would have wanted them to do. And these were people with determination, you know, to get to a point where they wanted to go. If the, if the, if the compass told them to go west and there was a mountain in the way, what did they do? They went over it. If it pointed them to cross that fast-moving river, what did they do? They went over it. If it snowed, they kept going because they knew in their heart they had determined this is what they were going to do. And if something got in the way, they didn't stop. You know, if, if it did point over a fast-moving river, they floated their wagons and family to get over to where they had purposed in their hearts to go. You know, I, I used to sit and think, whatever compelled these people to go through all of this? I never sat there and wished I could have stuffed my nine kids in a four by 10 wagon and set off for the West. But also I was thinking, and this was Friday when I was thinking about this, I did stuff Jane and five kids in a van and a U-Haul and moved to Kentucky 28 years ago last Friday. That was all the adventure I was up for. <laughs> and I'll tell you, we, we figuratively speaking, we've, we've faced some things that we didn't know we were going to face when we came down here. But we were determined this is where God won us. This is where true north was for us. And we headed there. I'm sure some of the pioneers didn't expect to face what they faced. You know, I'm sure there were many times of refreshing and fun experiences on the way, maybe a, maybe a majority of the time. They, that didn't make movies, you know. You know, new landscapes and beautiful views, and maybe they had campfires, and somebody got out their fiddle or whatever, and there was plenty of game, you know, to eat. And you know, I'm sure they enjoyed those things, those things, but getting to their true north was an adventure. And there's a lot of examples in history um, examples and parallels of people who set out on their path to find their true north or where they had determined to go. And for the Christian, and I, I hope for everyone here today, we have a true north, a constant. 
a never-changing point of reference that guides us on our journey, and it gives us direction. And sometimes it leads us to places where we really wouldn't want to go. And, and it's called the Word of God, or it's, you know, we all know it as the Bible. So we're going to look at some experiences or examples <clears throat> in Scripture of some people, uh, their experiences, because they had a true north setting for their lives. And I know there, are, there may be um, out there, you know, the thought is kind of out there, and I've heard it, that, well, we just want, we just want to hear the good thing. I mean, we just, want, we just want the green pastures. We just want the quiet waters. We just want the... Like, like John said last week about the army recruiters. You know, and I know somebody here in town, their, their son was in, the, in a band, I think. Or no, he played an instrument. And he joined the Marines and he, you know, he thought he was gonna play his drums for two years and get released and get out and get the benefits. And well, as soon as after boot camp, he got shipped to Iran. And I remember talking to the mom, and she was crying. It wasn't supposed to be this. They told, well, I think when you're in the services, I think they don't ask you, I think. I don't know that for sure, but I don't think that they ask you. Um, you know, and my flesh wants to say, <clears throat> yeah, that's what I want. You know, do we sell Christianity that way? Are there the recruiters that say, well, you only have, you'll only have calm waters, and you'll only have a bed of roses? You know, it's kind of not selling, it's not selling it correctly. And of course we have those seasons. And there's some seasons coming up like that here of the green pastures and the calm, the calm waters. There's, there's seasons coming like that. But we've got to take the whole counsel. John just talked about God using our struggles to mold our character. And for sure, that's what he does. So we're going to look at uh, some examples in the Bible. We're going to start in Daniel 1. If you want to start there, we're going to talk about Daniel a little bit. And I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 7. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the princes of the eunuchs gave names of Belshazzar, uh, Shadrach, and Abednego. So basically, this king goes in, he takes out the prime, the athletes, 
the ones who knew science, the king's children, you know, he brought royalty. He wanted the, bet, the, cream of the, the cream of the crop, and he was going to bring them back, and he was going to acclimate them to his culture. He was going to teach them the language. He was going to feed them his food and teach them for three years so that they would be Americanized or whatever. It was pressures from the outside trying to conform these kids to look like everybody around them. And of course, you know, he and uh, Daniel and his three, fr three friends were chosen, and they were eat the food and the drink and the wine. And like I said, basically, they were going to acclimate them to the, new to the new culture. And then we have in verse 8, but Daniel proposed in his heart that he would not. And my point here is being that, we, I mean, here we have a conflict. David, I mean, Daniel is eating, he is learning the language. And we have a conflict here between Daniel and the culture because Daniel has a different compass point that he's following. My commentary says that in that country, the people threw a part of their food and some of their wine on the ground before they ate as an offering to their gods. Kind of like, I mean, before we eat, we, we stop and pray, we give thanks. Well, they were giving thanks to their God. <clears throat> and to Daniel, that was idolatry. According to his Jew, Jew, Jewish tradition, Jewish law, he was not going to defile himself. He, he came up against a wall. This was his mountain. This was his fast-moving river. And he had to say no. And as we know, um, the guy that was over them allowed them to eat their, he calls it pulse, or eat, he, didn't, he didn't have to eat the king's meat. He said, test us. Test us for 10 days and see if our countenance isn't as just as bright and we're not faint and if we don't eat the king's um, food. But you know, he had a conscience against committing idolatry and eating unclean foods because of the Jewish law. And his compass setting would not allow him to do this. You know, and sometimes our compass setting, our true north, the word of God is going to compel us to say no. And let's not be afraid to say no. You know, sometimes... It's someone close to us that we have to say no to. A long time ago, and all of my kids that are here will remember, we went to a Josh Harris seminar one time, and, it was, and he was talking basically about you know, compass points, and he was saying that he had a friend named Jonathan, and they used to do everything together, and um, one time Jonathan dyed his hair, or he put bleach on it or what, you know what <laughs> they used to do, and he really thought, he really liked the looks of it. And so Josh dyed his hair. Well, Jonathan's hair was brown, so it turned that, you know, that bleed, the highlight or whatever, whatever. Well, Josh's hair was black. So when he put the bleach on his hair, it turned his hair a bright orange. <laughs> and so when he came home, you know, of course, his mom and dad are going, what have you done? And, and, he's, and he was saying it in his pre-teen he was kind of squeaking when he was saying this because it was when he was a teen. And, and he said, uh, 
the parents ask him, well, if Jonathan jumped off a mountain, would you? And the point was being, where's the point that you would say no and not follow that and follow what you know, you know, you know what to do. And we still use that saying sometimes, you know, well, if John, if he asked you to do this, would you? Daniel lived a life of a pure conscience. And as we will see, living a life of pure conscience before God brings confidence when you need to trust God for something. And then over in chapter 6, verse 1 of Daniel. Another king, Darius, is now on the throne, and he's promoting Daniel. And it says in verse 3, then was Daniel, then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him. And the thing caught, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. And the presidents and princes thought to find occasion, or tried to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could not find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault find, found in him. That is an amazing, can that be said about us? Um, these men are going about, they're trying, to, they're trying to make a law to trip him up in his beliefs. And then in verse 10, it, okay, so they do and they, um, and they say, you know, when the bell rings or whatever it was, everybody is to bow down to the king. And then in verse 10, we see another example because this Daniel had a true north setting. It says, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. He just, no matter when the, when the government made a law, he kept doing what he knew he was supposed to do. He was going to stay on course. And it says that he was praying as he was used to doing. And prayer will always keep us on course when troubles and roadblocks come our way. Conversing with the one who established true north is a key in staying on that and that path. And we know the rest of the story about Daniel. He's thrown in the lion's den because of his obedience. Obviously, that was a mountain of him headed west. You know, you know we would say, and maybe Daniel thought, wait, I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm guilty of serving God with all my heart. And now it's to the lion's den. You know, it doesn't seem fair. But because he has, he is purposed in his heart to follow his true north. Sometime, and sometimes God is showing us what's in our heart. You know, God already knows what's in our heart. But sometimes he wants us to see, you know, decisions that we make and in retrospect go, what? I, that, you know, 
What was in my heart that I made that decision? I read in a book one time that people want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it'll require anything from them. It looked like Daniel was going to lose everything because he was following his compass, but in the end, he gained everything. In chapter, verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 28, we read, So Daniel prospered, or was promoted. He had a hold of his true north. And we also know when we read Daniel, we hear about the, the three friends that were in there with him. When they were told to bow down to the statue set up by the king, they could have, they could have done just as the crowd did. And no one would have noticed. You know, oh, we'll just bow down. I mean, who, you know, who's watching? But his three friends, they were ready to die for their true north. It's interesting that both Daniel and his friends were set up by people in the world or people in the government um, who didn't like them. You know, they were making laws to trip them up or to prove, you know, to them that they couldn't follow their God or couldn't follow their true north. Both times they weren't doing anything wrong. And there, like I said, there will be time in our lives when we come across our paths to cause us to make decisions because of our compass heading that's going to clash with the world. It's going to clash with the mainstream of thought. It's going to clash with what everybody else is doing. And sometimes, like I said, it may be God just revealing to us what's really in our heart. And there are those here who could take an easier way out. They could have decided to follow, but they have decided to follow their compass heading, which is in the Word of God. It always points us to the right way to do things God's way. Next, I want to look at a man in Scripture who was searching for his true north, and that's in John 3. It um, starts the story of Nicodemus. So if you want to turn to John 3, I'm just going to read verse 1 and 2. Kyle Eidelman in his... He has a good section about this in his book, Not a Fan, that I really found interesting. This is the first time that Nicodemus is mentioned in Scripture. And the first thing we see about him, well, I'm going to read it. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. The point I want to make is here at the beginning, the first time we hear about Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus at night. If he could speak with Jesus at night, then no one would be around. And maybe he could, maybe he could follow Jesus without anybody really knowing it. He could spend time with Jesus at night, so maybe he could begin a relationship with Jesus without really having to make any changes. He could follow Jesus without it impacting his job. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, you know, and they were all against him. He could follow Jesus, and it wouldn't impact his job, and maybe his friends wouldn't notice. He recognized him, but he was an undercover admirer of him. He was a secret admirer because being a secret admirer cost him nothing. 
He didn't want the other leaders to see him in Jesus' presence as a disciple, learning from him. Becoming a follower of him at this point in his life would have cost him too much. He would have to choose between religion and a relationship with Jesus. And of course, we know Jesus wants us during the day too, not just at night. Unlike Daniel and his three friends, he wasn't ready to go public. He was a religious leader and he had too much to lose. So he was hiding his compass bearing. People in the world should know how we would answer a question, say on ethics or truthfulness. You know, does, would people say about you if they want you to witness or something, they'd say, oh, don't ask him. He always tells the truth. We don't, you know, do they know about, do they know that about us? And today there is hardly no conviction against lying. I've had people just volunteer that what they said, they came in the door and said, Daryl, that really wasn't a lie. I was just saying that, I said, I didn't, I didn't say it was a lie. Why, why are you? But they knew my compass bearing as far, in the, as far as telling the truth. They just volunteered it like, oh, don't tell Daryl, he'll tell the truth. Do people say that of us? You know, they're learning that you have a compass bearing of true north if they do. Brother Tom used to say if we were called into court on an accusation of being a Christian, they better have enough evidence to convict you. That's always stuck with me. God is looking for more than words of belief. He is looking for how those words are lived out in your life, not just at night. If you read through the Gospels that tell the life of Jesus, you'll find that Jesus says, believe in me. He says that four times. Do you know how many times he says, follow me? Over 20 times. There's a, 20 times he says, follow me. There's a difference. Following Jesus is part of believing in Jesus. Following Jesus isn't something you can only do at night when nobody notices. <clears throat> Next we see him in chapter 7. And at the end of that chapter, I'm going to read 45 through 53. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have not you brought him? They had asked him to brought him to you know, to start, um, start the trial, trying to get rid of him. The officers answered, never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? You know, have all, any of the big shots believed on Jesus? But these people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith to them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hears him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Are you also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. He kind of broke up that tent situation. 
So the Sanhedrin wants Jesus brought before them, and all Israel is concerned, is confused as to who Jesus really is. Some are saying that he is the Christ, and some are saying that he is not. So this is no longer a secret conversation about what he believes for Nicodemus. He allows what he believes to interfere with his work, his relationships, and his financial future. In that moment, he stops just believing and starts the journey of following. He is no longer ashamed of what he believes. And just as a side, in that verse, um, let me find it. They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. In my Bible, it refers Isaiah 9, and in that scripture is the one about unto us a child is given, and it refers to Galilee right in there. So they didn't even know what they were talking about. My point is, be like the Bereans and search it out. Because it does talk about a prophet coming from Galilee. Jonah was from Galilee. So anyway, that's, that was free, as Tom would have said. Be as the, be as the uh, Bereans and check it out. Also, it's the same type of setting as for Daniel and the three friends that the leader of the day, the civic leaders, the religious leaders are the ones trying to get rid of Jesus. You know, it's kind of the same way in this culture. I mean, if you'd have told me they were going to outlaw prayer, if you were going to tell me, tell me all the things that have happened that the government is trying to get, you know, the crosses have got to come, anything that reminds anything of Jesus or said or prayed, they're trying to get rid of it. They're trying to shove it. Do it at night. They're trying to shove it back out of our lives. So here we see Nicodemus's progression as he, ex he is acknowledging him in public and in a way defending him. Then the last time we see him is in John 19. And this is after the burial in verse um, 38. And it says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away uh, the body of Jesus and Pilate, the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave them leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, here we see him again, which at the first came to Jesus by night. So here we have two disciples that were secretly or formally a secret admirer of Jesus wanting to give him uh, the proper, proper burial. And it says that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of ointment and spices, which was a big deal in those days. It was done by people who loved somebody greatly who had died. So we see when others has, had abandoned Jesus or were hiding in fear, Nicodemus made this great action of affection and devotion. Things have moved past um, words of belief expressed at night. He was no longer a secret admirer. He had become an enthusiastic follower. He finally knew where his true north was. And these three scriptures are the only place where Nicodemus is mentioned in the Bible. And incidentally, the word Nicodemus means victorious among his people. 
I thought that was kind of telling for being a part of the Jewish leadership, you know, and part of the Sanhedrin, one of the 72. His, his name meant victorious. He, meant, he, he found out his true north. He was the victorious one. Someone recently sent us a book um, called The Coming Apostasy. It's by Mark Hitchcock and Jeff Kinley. And I had, like I said, I'd started this study more than two years ago when Brother Tom mentioned that. But at the, one of the, at the end of one of the chapters, they mentioned your true north, so it piqued my interest, and I thought that they had some really good uh, things to say, and I'm going to share some of their observations. And they said, we live in a world and culture where there are presented so many different true north readings, and they are mostly all confusing and have most rational people scratching their heads. And an example of this is, I just heard this this week, and I'm just, I'm scratching my head, so I must be rational. This couple, and I'm not even sure if they were in the United States, they had a, a baby born in the hospital, and you know, in the, you have to fill out your birth certificate. Well, they decided they're going to leave for the sex of the child. They were going to leave it open and let the, let the child decide when he got older if he was male or female, or both, or neither. I don't know where they're. I don't know where they're headed with this. But they thought that. But they were saying that this will probably be a growing trend. <laughs> Ask me. I could have filled it in. I mean, there's <laughs> there's ways to tell. <laughs> I thought, where where are we headed? I mean, that could go. Well, that's all with you know with the, the whole bathroom mission. Anyway. It's just the beginning of that. It's just the beginning of that. Um, and, um, why do we, the question, and they raise the question, why do we believe what we believe? When we say we believe a biblical truth, where does it come from? Does it come from, well, my parents taught me that. Or, well, it's what my pastor believes. Um, I read it in a Christian book. Well, yeah, we believe that as a church. That's what my, that's what my church, it's in the bylaws, you know. Well, or you could, a uh, famous Christian said it. Well, it just feels right. Or it's what, it's what I've always believed. It gives me comfort to believe it. Or it makes me happy. Another Brother Tom quote. But don't you think. Have you ever tried to explain something to somebody and say, but don't you think that they, but don't you think that now, but don't you think God, or oh, it just seems more inclusive, you know, or I can't believe God behaving otherwise, or, well, I seriously studied it and I, that's what I believe, or it's in the Bible. There is only one of these statements that is 100% reliable. If it can't be backed up by scripture, it's nothing more than wishful thinking and speculation. You know, and maybe, and many people treat the scriptures like outdated clothes in the closet. You go to your closet and you pick something out and says, I don't like that one anymore. I'm not gonna wear that. Or this one doesn't fit me anymore. I'm not going to wear that. This one is old and out of style. You know, that tongues thing. This doesn't fit anymore. 
that's no longer in fashion. Or, no one wears that anymore. This is what people are saying about doctrines. It, it, it's the same way. And I'm not talking about jean skirts when I say that. Everybody say, he's not talking about jean skirts. That's not what I'm talking about when it says no one wears that anymore. Or, uh, this one doesn't fit me anymore. You know, that modesty thing, everybody is wearing, everybody's wearing this, and that just doesn't fit anymore. Have you ever said, have I ever said, fill in the blank. Have I ever said that about some plot that I've always believed, but, oh, because, you know, because hopefully it's based in the word. That's the whole point here. You know, and I'm thinking that's, that's why we come together. But there is, we live in a culture that truth goes out of style. It already is. We're, I mean, we're there. The truth, the truth of this word is really not in style. But we all know what Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. And Bancroft, i got to sprinkle a little bit of theology in there. Bancroft says in his theology book, Reason teaches us that no change is possible with God, whether of increase or decrease, progress or deterioration, contraction or development. All change must be to better or to worse. But God is absolute perfection, and no change to the better is possible. No cause for change exists, either outside of God or within himself. God is perfect. He always has been perfect, so it's never, he's never had to be updated. Another example they give of picking and choosing what scripture to believe is that of going to a buffet. We pass on the things that don't appeal to us, like the pickled okra, or as Tom would say, the pink rice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't partake of everything because of those reasons. Oh, we don't want to, that's not very inclusive, or that's not very loving, or fill in the, fill in the blank. We can't afford to pick and choose because knowing the scripture is what keeps us from being deceived. Living in the world we do, our atmosphere is filled with half-truths and outright lies. We walk through a minefield of falsehood every day. And what we hear people say and what we hear on the news, bumper stickers, you know your whole theology can be on a bumper sticker. What do you think of when somebody puts a rainbow on their bumper sticker nowadays? We used to think of God's promise after the ark. That's not what you think of. Now it's, let's coexist. You know, it, it, it's, it's a, and you see it enough. Does your mind go, well, maybe, what about, maybe, that's not inclusive enough. You don't think, you don't think there'll be any fill in the blank in heaven? No. <clears throat> Jane and I were some we were in Lexington yesterday morning. 
y people, I mean just people. <laughs> um, the author of Hebrews wrote in chapter 5, verse 14, but strong meat belongs to those that are of full age, even those who by reason of use or practice have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. And again, I, like I said, that's one of the reasons we come twice a week. We're being taught to discern between right and wrong according to the word, the correct compass reading. And I hope, you know, I hope that's one of the reasons why we come. Learning the doctrines of the Bible keeps us safe when we have to maneuver through the minefield of our culture. Understanding and believing God's truths enable us to discern the distinction between the truth and the devil's subtle lies. The truth is not a fluid, ongoing revelation, but rather one that has been once for all delivered to the saints. The Bible does not have to be updated every few years to keep up with the times. It sounds crazy, but what if there was a verse in the Bible that said, I am the Lord, I change not until the 1700s. That's when I will update the scripture to make it more relevant to the times. <laughs> I mean, that sounds crazy. It sounds like, duh. But that's what people are doing when they're bending, twisting. Well, that was, I'm sorry, homosexuality was not a culture thing, a cultural thing. I mean, it, it addresses it, it addresses it in the Bible. There has never been a new sin that has been invented that is already not addressed in the Bible. It is already addressed. True North was once and for all delivered to the saints. I heard of an a Olympic athlete who was an archery shooter. What's that called? Archery shooter? He's an arch. He that was his Olympic thing. He, he shot. Air, he was an arch. He was a archer. Is that it? He was an archer. -er. Okay. So you've seen the pictures. They all walk up. They all have this line, and there's 30 or 40 targets down there, and they stand there and do some practice shots, and then they do the the competition. And he was winning the competition and he had one more arrows to shoot and so he pulls back and he aims for the bullseye and lets it fly and he hits the bullseye right in the center of his neighbor's target and he loses the competition. It was the target for the person standing next to him. So he gets a zero and loses it. At the end of our lives, a great shot at the wrong target will give us a big zero. And, we, and the only way, the only way we can know our true north is the Bible. You know, I think we've all probably heard of Gandhi. He was a pacifist, he was a man from India. And um, at the time when they were getting their independence from England, he was a moral and a good person. I've heard that he read the Sermon on the Mount every day. But if he tried to make it into heaven, if he thought he was doing this to make it into heaven, if he, if he tried to make it on his own merits and not on the shed blood of Jesus, 
he shot at the wrong target. He got a big zero at the end of his life. Paul exhorts Timothy, through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. One evening after supper, I was, um, we just finished devotions to the kids, and I read a verse that had stayed on my mind. I know where I was sitting. I know the time of day. And it's John 12, 48, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. He that rejects me and receives not my words hath one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So he's saying the words that I've spoken to you, the words that we have, the red words that we have right here, that is going to be our judge in the end as to what he said. So how could it be true if his word changes? How could these words be everybody's judge in the end if they're changing, if they don't mean that, if he didn't, if he didn't mean that? We have, only, we have the only written, God-breathed record of the words of Jesus. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. We all hear or we know of somebody who has said, you know, maybe their child has ADD or something, um, attention deficit disorder. I kind of think we live in an ADD generation. Everybody has a text to read, a tweet to read, a blog to post. Our phones are constantly chirping, dinging, vibrating, buzzing. What do we do when we get a text from Jesus? Are we just as responsive to that? Do we even respond? Do we recognize the ring? Does he keep getting the busy signal or the answering service saying, I'd love to talk to you, but I'm busy right now. I'll call you back. The comfy cow store in Louisville had a sign on the front of it that says, tomorrow we can eat broccoli, but today is for ice cream. I like that saying. <laughs> but it says something about we can do the same thing with studying the word or praying. We need to be serious about the things of the Lord and quit putting things off that the Lord is dealing with us about. We're going to miss, we're going to miss our true north. Always ask, what does the Bible say? Not, does it make me happy? Make me feel good? Does it make me accepted by others? Evaluate what you hear and trace your own beliefs back to Scripture. This is your true north, your compass in a confusing culture, our immovable bedrock in an ever-raging storm. Remember, he said, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again, Lord, for this small amount of time where we come. And, and I pray that by your spirit, Lord, that you show us things that will help us live more pleasing to you and um, 
that in the end, we will have not shot at anything less than what um, is the likeness of your son that you ask us to live by. And I pray that we give the, the Bible and, and the teaching that we get, Lord, the proper uh, respect that we should. We know we're on a path. We know that we're on an adventure. Give us grace to go over those mountains and through those fast-moving rivers, Lord, and keep us on the path so that in the end we'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, Lord. In Jesus' name. of the Lord are pure. The words of the 